clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. From our bunker beneath the snowy wasteland that is America's mid-Atlantic coast today, welcome to Business Disrupted. Today, we explore the sovereign citizen movement in the United States, what they are, what they believe, and the business of how they interact with the rest of us. Why are we talking about sovereign citizens? Well, first, they're out there. The Southern Poverty Law Center estimates their numbers at between 200 and 300,000, or just under 1% of the U.S. population. Second, when they interact with people who aren't sovereign citizens, especially on subjects related to taxes, indebtedness, or law enforcement, those interactions can get complicated. And finally, when they do come into contact with the law or society's general legal framework, it tends to get messy, loud, and potentially dangerous for the non-sovereign citizens in the interaction. So, an ounce of prevention. Our guest today is super lawyer-rated attorney Tom Horan of the Cozen O'Connor firm in Wilmington, Delaware. Tom's practice is focused on financial restructuring and bankruptcy litigation, and that's brought him quite a bit of working knowledge on the intersection of sovereign citizens and the bankruptcy system. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ted. Absolutely. So, let's start with this. What is a sovereign citizen? A sovereign citizen is someone who probably believes that the federal government is illegitimate, doesn't believe in the currency that's issued, doesn't believe in the nation's laws, doesn't believe they should be subject to driver's license, car registrations, traffic stops. Um, but what they are is also, in a way, hard to define because there's no central organization. There's no accrediting group that makes you a sovereign citizen. So because of the way that sovereign citizen ideas are transmitted from one to another, they tend to be uh, fairly particular to each person. And there's no, there's no creed that goes along with being a sovereign citizen. So common to, to far right sort of universally free ideologies, it is what they make of it. And it can be highly individualized. Um, sovereign citizens are also referred to as, as, as free men of the land, or they will refer to themselves as a free person of the land. One of the things that comes up frequently with sovereign citizens is their, their belief that upon Lincoln's declaration of martial law on September 15th, 1863, the federal government ceased to exist and was replaced by a sham government that uses maritime law the concept of corporate personhood and the uniform commercial code to justify using us citizens as collateral to the federal reserve. And, and there is quite a lot to unpack there. Um, how, how, how did, how did they get to that point? Well, the, with a lot of these things, the explanation is going to be unsatisfying because frankly, it tends not to make a whole lot of sense. It, there are kernels of truth at the heart of most of these theories, like most conspiracy theories, uh, but they don't necessarily bear themselves out on, on further scrutiny. Now, the, the idea that the government uh, became illegitimate or that the U.S., the real U.S. government went away in this during the time of the Civil War is something that a lot of sovereign, sovereign citizens believe. Uh, others will pin it to 1933 
with the establishment of the Federal Reserve and the time that we went off the gold standard. Uh, but one of the when you when you look at the the period of the Civil War and after that, particularly with the enactment of the Fourteenth Amendment, a lot of sovereign citizens believe that at that point, uh, U.S. U.S. residents ceased to have the rights that they had previously enjoyed that were granted by God and that the founders uh, emphasized the importance of these God-given rights. And instead you were replaced by a federal corporate citizenship in which they didn't have rights. Uh, there's a certain section of the thinking that says that because the 14th Amendment occurred in the context of the amendments dealing with slavery, that only African-Americans are actually U.S. citizens and white people are not. They're, uh, they're citizens of, of their states or they're citizens of no territory at all, no government at all. Um, there is a white supremacist strain that certainly was there at the, the origins of the sovereign citizens movement. And to an extent, it remains there today. And, and you, you raise an interesting thing that this notion that the constitution as a document is what established the citizenship of freed slaves, that it stands in contrast to what sovereigns have said are the rights that were not given to them by the constitution, but that always existed that were, that were inalienable and given by the creator and therefore no government can restrict them. And, and, and is that the basis for differentiating on the basis of race that, that a, 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 a sovereign citizen who, who is white is somehow relieved of these responsibilities of citizenship that, that derive after the 14th Amendment? Well, they exist for people who are smart enough to claim it. And here's where a lot of the magical thinking of, of sovereign citizen thought comes in. They, they believe that, that you have to seize that power back from the government. Now, on the, the issue of race, there are African-American sovereign citizens too. It's not strictly a white supremacist movement anymore, but there's a separate group uh, that identify generally as Moors or Moorish people who believe that uh, in the late 18th century when the United States entered into a treaty with the Moors that all African people uh, started to enjoy certain rights vis-a-vis -vis the American government and they're free of them, and they have diplomatic immunity. Again, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense necessarily, but uh, it emphasized the point though that, that it's it's not strictly a white supremacist movement anymore, and there right. are there is a strain of thought in the African American community as well. And 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 this gets down to the highly individualized nature of sovereign citizen beliefs, because while. While some sovereigns say that it all fell apart for America with the passage of the 14th Amendment, others say that it was Lincoln declaring martial law during the Civil War, and others say that the U.S. was reorganized as a post office in 1789. And, and other than leave me alone and I don't want to have to pay taxes, there's, there aren't a lot of common threads that run through the different sects or, or belief systems within the broader sovereign citizen ideology, are there? No, I, I think if you want to boil it down to one phrase, it's leave me alone. That's what most sovereign citizens essentially want, is for the government to leave them alone, or banks right. to leave them alone. So is this, is this 
just a form of political belief? I mean, is it rooted in libertarianism? Is it rooted in some far right ideology? It's, it's basically the, the free man concept that got so much attention in the nineties, but more or well, more or less organized. Right. I, I, I don't. Th- I think that it goes back more to the uh, the far right wing. Started out with the Posse Comitatus movement in the 1970s, which was a, a far right white supremacist group, and certainly the militia movement that um, became popular during the 1990s, and uh, as we've seen, very much persists today. Uh, you know, their their thinking is kind of central to the sovereign citizen movement, which again, it's it's anti-government. Mm-hmm. It's a belief that the federal government is illegitimate and they're resisting it. So, so Posse Comitatus, that, that movement, um, it was, it was your pretty run of the mill anti-federal government, anti-taxation organization or group belief system, I guess, with, with elements of racism and anti-Semitism that are common to, to those ideologies. They, they really distinguished themselves as a group as being known for two things. Um, First is they were Nazis, and and while that has sadly come 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 into more attention recently because there are simply more proponents being public about about that, um, it wasn't necessarily some, kind of something you would run into in the Pacific Northwest every day in the late '60s and early '70s. But the 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 second thing that they got really good at, and I think that that shows up a lot in stories about sovereign citizens and their interactions with the business community is that they mastered the art of warfare by paperwork. Um, If there was, if there was a frivolous lawsuit to be filed, posse comitatus would find a way to do it. They they would bog down the judicial system, filing false liens. They'd make unsubstantiated claims about property. They created fake bank documents and fake letters. If there was a way to just bog a system down with frivolous paperwork and frivolous motions and frivolous litigation, Posse Comitatus found a way to do it. And, and that really became, I think, their hallmark among, uh, among the, the far right fringe. And a lot of that ideology and a lot of that method shows up in, in the sovereign citizen movement today, doesn't it? It does. And, th- and that's why the, the sort of sovereign citizen activism with, with paperwork and flooding the courts and flooding uh, the public records offices, it, it's called paper terrorism, because uh, it can have some pr- pretty serious effects on people who are being targeted. Uh, for instance, sovereign citizens will often uh, target judges, police officers, uh, town officials, city officials, with things like uh, placing liens against their homes, which is very difficult to deal with, expensive, uh, inconvenient. Um, there's all sorts of ways that they use paper to make people's lives uh, really difficult when they get into their crosshairs. Interesting. So, so let's dive a little bit into some of the core core operating principles behind the, the, the beliefs. Um, sovereign citizens adhere to, or most sovereign citizens adhere to a straw man theory that when a person is born in the United States, uh, the government issues them a birth certificate and that birth certificate becomes a legal entity unto itself, separate and apart from the flesh and blood of the human being who was born. So that, that their biological form is legally distinct from the legal entity represented by a birth certificate or legal name. 
Right. And one of the things that's interesting about their thinking is when they look at government documents, your name is often rendered in all caps, right? So the belief is that when there's a birth certificate and the name is in all caps, that refers to the, the corporate being, the straw man, the, uh, the entity that's been pledged as collateral to foreign governments. And the lowercase name or the, the, the first cap and then lowercase name, that, that is the, the flesh and blood person who they are trying to reclaim from the government and sort of disavowing. Um, so, except, so to be clear, this methodology is based on the fact that as a coincidence in 1950, whenever, when the Telex corporation decided, no, we can just use capital letters, it'll be less expensive. And that became sort of the boon of printing for, for decades to come. That is now the basis for a, a legal philosophy. It, it is the basis for a legal philosophy. Yes. And, um, the, the, the timing of this all works well, right? Because, you know, 1933, we go on, we go off the gold standard. We have the Federal Reserve in place um, with the connotations about the involvement of bankers. So you, you get into a lot of the, uh, the anti-Semitic theories, right? Right. Well, I mean, but, that, you know, the anti-Semitic train is never late. It, it, any, yeah. any time that there are, there are white identity crises, or identity stress, that that train's going to come along soon enough. It's going to be racism. It's going to be anti-Semitism. It's going to be bankers, which is just another form of anti-Semitism. And, and that's just what it's going to be. It, exactly. And, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is certainly a hallmark of the Posse Comitatus movement, and it's extended to the sovereign citizens. But again, it's, you know, it's so pervasive. Anti-Semitism is, is almost always there, like you say. Um, and certainly with the focus on the banks and the Federal Reserve System, it, it's just never that far away, either explicitly or, or implicitly. So, so following the straw man theory, all of the, all of the government's statutes, their laws, their debts, a person's liabilities, their tax burden, any legal problems belong to the straw man. Or, or so the sovereign citizen would have us believe. So they belong to a separate legal personality, not the flesh and blood human being. And so a, a, a lot of what goes into the sovereign behavior is designed to avoid attaching themselves to their straw man identity. This is, this is, we're going further into the matrix at this point, I realize, but that it's, it's created this convenient I don't want to say scapegoat, but the straw man is a straw man. All the debts and all the problems in life belong to the piece of paper and not to the flesh and blood human. Is that, is that basically the path that they are pursuing? That, that's basically right, except that, that that corporate being, the straw man, has a really valuable purpose and a central role in most so sovereign citizen thinking. And that's that they believe that coincident with the establishment of the Federal Reserve, the United States went broke. We went off uh, the gold standard. And the government pledged all of the American citizens as collateral to foreign governments. And that there's a bank account set up in the US Treasury in the name of each of these corporate beings. With that birth certificate, they believe that that gets transmitted to Washington uh, within a couple of weeks after the birth certificate is registered 
locally. And that's sort of true. It, it, it goes to the, you know, so that you can issue a social security number. But what they believe is that it goes and it sets up that bank account. And the idea behind the straw man is that if you know all the secret words and you know how to file the right paperwork, that you can start to tap into that money that's set up for you uh, in what they call a straw man account. And this gives rise to a lot of the scams that uh, sovereign citizens get up to. And, and, and because we just have to know, how much money are we talking about in this bank account that doesn't exist? There, there are different estimates. Okay. There, I've heard a very specific number, $630,000. There is also um, a belief that it depends upon your social security number and that social security numbers uh, will give some idea as to how much money is set up. So Ted, you know, your social security number is probably a lot more valuable than mine, right? So you can keep going back to that well, probably a lot more than I can to start paying off your debts. And, and I, I will, I, I, I'm not going to ask you to explain why my social security number is more valuable than yours. Um, but neither of us are trying to collect on it anyway. So I, I guess it's a moot point. So when, when sovereigns try to get at this money, how do they do it? They, they do it through, again, paper. This, that's usually the way they do it. So they file false tax returns. One of the things that sovereign citizen gurus, they call them, you know, thought leaders in the sovereign citizen community, what they'll encourage uh, people to do is to file false tax returns. You have a right to that money. You're not, because you're sovereign, you're not obligated to pay taxes anyway. So go and use this system. Use the, use the IRS. So the file false tax returns that would show that they're entitled to large refunds of money. So then the money gets sent. Uh, sometimes it gets sent to the sovereign citizen and they can say, look, it works. Now, usually it doesn't work, but enough times it's, it's a human system. So right. there are going to be a few that slip through. And, uh, you know, there are estimates that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars go out of the treasury this way. And, and, and this owes more probably to, to the way the IRS processes things. It's, it, you know, there's more work than they can, than a human can ever put eyes on. So they process these, these, uh, these papers in the normal course of business. And then inevitably they attract somebody's attention. And while it worked in the first instance, there's often a, a difficult conversation when the IRS comes a calling for their $630,000 back and they, the, the, the citizen doesn't have it. Well, exactly right. And then, uh, then they need money for a lawyer. Uh, well, or many other things. Um, and, and that, that really gets into one of the other problems, which we'll get to later, which is what happens when the government comes calling and the sovereign citizen would rather not have the conversation going back to straw man theory. Um, a, a lot, it seems of what goes into a sovereign citizen's behavior that people may witness in their interactions is behavior that's designed to avoid attaching themselves to their straw man entity to or cre creating joinder is what it's called mm -hmm. and 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 sovereigns believe that if you register for some government service like a driver's license as you were mentioning before or some type of government benefit 
or if you accept a bill from a government entity or, or you accidentally sign your name the way it appears on a legal document or on tax paperwork, you are creating joinder with your straw man. And so a lot of what they do is designed to keep that, that air gap between the flesh and blood human in their mind and the straw man entity. And, and so we, we see manipulation of names. We see use of odd characters, odd language, strange signatures. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah, sure. They, what you, in order to recognize a sovereign citizen, you know, I've talked to if, uh, with judges and other legal professionals about this. You know, one of the things you want to look at is, is their paperwork. What are they filing and what does it say? And often in a name, your, your name is Ted Gavin. So the way that you might write it, if you were a sovereign citizen, it'd be Ted um, apostrophe M hyphen Gavin. And by putting in those extra characters there, you've uh, distanced yourself from the being that the government is um, intending to exert some authority over. Mm. Now, why that works or where it came up, came from, I, I don't know, but it's a commonly held belief. And, and so we, you know, we'll see people who are adherents to the sovereign citizen movement who, you know, will refer to themselves as John of the family Smith as though we're, we're having a pleasant breakfast meeting in 1389 instead of using just their normal, you know, given name and family name. Um, or they'll, they'll use red ink to write their name, or they'll only sign their name diagonally across something. Um, or, and, and, and one of my favorites, uh, they'll never use black or blue ink because black or blue ink signifies corporations. Right. Okay. Right. Well, of course uh, good for them. Um, and, and then we get to the collision between sovereign citizens and the uniform commercial code. Um, you'll often see an excessive use of the phrase all rights reserved or 308 and, and yeah. 308 for, for those who are not secured transaction lawyers, uh, or, or, or don't like to read the uniform commercial code for leisure. Um, section 308 of all the sections of the uniform commercial code is basically the part that says that you can reserve your rights if you're signing something. Um, and that's really all it says. It doesn't say anything about sovereign citizens. It's just, you know, yet another form of pseudo law that sovereign citizens kind of throw into this hodgepodge of, uh, of, of fractions of concepts that they use to sort of prop up their interactions with the outside world. Right. And commerce looms large, uh, in the sovereign citizen thinking, um, talked about the use of the uniform commercial code. A lot of sovereign citizens also believe that there are, there are two types of law in this country. There's um, common law and there is admiralty law. And admiralty law is actually, it's the law of, it's the law of the seas, but they view it as being the law of, of commerce. And they're not going to subject themselves to admiralty law. They'll only accept common law courts. Um, and the other thing about commerce, too, is that sovereign citizens believe that so long as they are not traveling in commerce, that they are free to drive their cars and go about their business without having to register them or get licensed or have license plates on cars. Uh, so and, that and the, does, 
So go ahead. Yeah, the, the difference between the, the, the commercial being and commercial activities and then the flesh and blood person is, uh, is very big in sovereign citizen thinking. And so this distinction between, <clears throat> between traveling and driving is the source of many a traffic stop available for your leisure on YouTube. Because invariably what happens is the, the police officer or state trooper asks the person for their driver's license and they tell the, and, and the sovereign citizen explains usually at an elevated volume over and over that they don't need a driver's license because it, that's only required if they are driving in commerce and they are not driving, they are traveling. Right. And you know, it's, it's a stalemate because the police officer is never going to get them to change their view and say, Oh my goodness, you're absolutely right. I'm driving without a license. I'm sorry. That won't happen. And, and the sovereign is either going to wear the police officer down where he realizes that this is going to end up with people getting very badly hurt, or he's just going to have to walk away and mail the ticket. If there's even right. a legitimate res registration or license number. Right. And, uh, you can spend a lot of time on, on YouTube, but when on YouTube, if you start to type sovereign citizens, the predictive text, one of the top things will come up with is sovereign citizens getting owned. And uh, because there are all these videos of, of uh, traffic stops, encounters with police where the, the sovereign citizen pulls out the language that you're talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm traveling. Um, I'm not driving. And they refuse to produce identification because traffic traffic laws are unlawful in their view. Uh, right. And so it, it can really escalate. And uh, so many of these videos that you can see on YouTube end with a uh, police baton smashing through a driver's side window and the person right. getting pulled out. And, and it's important to, to note, I think that, you know, despite the number of these, these sovereign citizen gurus and the number of people that will pay good money to buy into the sovereign citizen ideology and buy fake diplomatic immunity cards and buy uh, guides to avoiding taxes through redeeming the $630,000 bank account. Um, there are no instances of these theories actually working. And there are, there is extensive documentation of them being refuted sometimes in exacting detail by pretty much every court of law had to opine on them. Um, doesn't this run out of steam at some point? One would think, but, but it, it doesn't seem to be. And, and part of the reason for that is that the sovereign citizen gurus tend to target people who are in really distressing circumstances. They're in foreclosure, they're facing bankruptcy. And um, again, it's this magical thinking that there's gotta be a way out. And if I listen to these people, they seem smart. They know what to do. If I follow their instructions, then I'm going to come out from underneath the burden of all this debt or all these problems, these legal problems that I have, uh, my problems with banks. So it's it can be very tempting for people who are extremely vulnerable. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We have been talking with Tom Haran about sovereign citizens. We're going to take a short break and let you listen to some words from our sponsors. When we come back, what happens when sovereign citizens learn that the government that they decry has just about had it up to here with them? 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Salmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're talking with attorney Tom Horan about sovereign citizens. We've been talking about what goes into the belief system of the sovereign citizen movement. Uh, Tom, what, or should I say whom, are some recognizable examples of when sovereign citizens and the government's differing opinions collide? I think that the one that most of the the listeners would know, Ted, right away would be Wesley Snipes. Um, If you recall, about 10 years ago or so, Wesley Snipes uh, got in a lot of trouble with the IRS and ended up going to jail. I think he was sentenced to a three-year term. I don't know what he served uh, for for tax evasion. But the story behind it was not merely about tax evasion. He had fallen under the sway of a sovereign citizen guru. And he filed some fraudulent tax returns to try to get back uh, the money in that straw man account. He uh, then for a period of years uh, didn't file any tax returns at all. Uh, but he, he also, uh, was someone who, you know, just, he, he met up with a, a sovereign citizen, seemed to address his problems where he felt that he was paying way too much in taxes, I guess, as a successful actor, uh, and bought it all and ended up paying a pretty heavy cost for it. Mm. Um, 
Well, Wesley Snipes is probably the the more endearing of the list of people that that have that have run into problems related to the sovereign citizen movement. Other uh, other recognizable names are are the Bundys, Clive and, and Ammon Bundy uh, of the 2014 Bundy, or I guess 2014 or 2016 Bundy standoff, and then uh, Ammon Bundy leading the Malheur Wildlife Refuge standoff. Terry Nichols, the uh, the Oklahoma City bomber the accomplice to Timothy McVeigh and Jerry and Joseph Kane, who in a shootout in West Memphis, Arkansas killed two police officers before being killed in, in that shootout. They were all sovereign citizens and their interactions with the government that many people would say resulted in acts of domestic terrorism uh, were all based on their sovereign, sovereign citizen beliefs. Yeah, I think the the Jerry Kane story, as awful as it is, is 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 really interesting, especially for uh, for this audience, Ted, because Jerry Kane was monetizing the sovereign citizen beliefs. He he was a a would be guru, an aspiring guru. I wouldn't say he was all that successful, but he uh, he put on seminars about uh, for relief from foreclosure and relief from other types of debts. Traveled around the country. Um, his seminars didn't necessarily do all that well, but while he was out on the road uh, doing one of these one of these tours, he got pulled over by the police in West Memphis. His son, who is uh, n- named Joseph, was 16 years old, was in the car, and uh, there were two police officers involved. Joseph, the teenager, shot the two of them uh, about 25 times in total and killed both of these police officers. So it was actually the kid who did the shooting. Um, but I understand they had arrest warrants or Jerry had arrest warrants out, but they also as sovereign citizens, they believed that they shouldn't be pulled over by the police. And as I understand it, they were actually using a fraudulent license plate, which is common uh, among some sovereign citizens. Uh, they, they took off, they killed the two police officers, took off, they were caught a short time later, had a shootout, and both of them were killed. So we're talking about interactions between sovereigns and, and the conflicts that arise with government. And, and it sounds like the, the, the conflicts typically occur around issues relating to, to banking, law enforcement, taxes, regulations, any type of governmental regulatory scheme um, and then any interactions with law enforcement and the judiciary in general. Um, we look at, at kind of the, the most common crimes that you'll see associated with the sovereign citizen movement, income tax evasion, as you mentioned, uh, the redemption scheme, trying to get one's hands on that, that sweet $630,000 in the non-existent bank account. Um, we mentioned earlier selling fraudulent documents, forged diplomatic immunity cards that have fetched between $400 and $2,000 each. And we'll put a thumbtack in why a person who is a sovereign citizen and has full diplomatic immunity would need to spend $2,000 for a card that says that they're a sovereign citizen and that they have diplomatic immunity. Um, and then a, a number of run-of-the-mill financial frauds, uh, money laundering is, seems to be uh, frequently popping up, insurance fraud trying to to get the government to pay a person's personal debts, which is I, I, kind of the the impetus of 
the redemption scheme, trying money on, on in, in that bank account. And then, as you mentioned before, filing false liens. Um, there was one person, Michael Lewis II of Gretna, Louisiana, who felt that people had violated what he called his common law copyright by speaking or writing his name without his permission. Uh, for example, on bills. And so he sent them cease and desist letters and demands for outrageous damages, uh, starting at about $653,000 and, and went as high as $3 million before he, he really, really got to the, got to the pinnacle when he, he tried to assert, assert a, a, a damage north of $100 million against the judge in his trial. And when the parties didn't pay up, Lewis filed liens against those parties. Um, his trial took one day and he was convicted and that was 2016. How, you know, how do these liens play into kind of the broader business commercial litigation context? Where, where have they shown up in, in other cases? Where, where does this kind of war by paperwork show up in, in, in people's everyday interactions? Well, the, you know, the purpose of the liens is to, uh, is to get revenge at people who have hurt them. And some of these sovereign citizen gurus teach how to, how to use papers to their advantage. So, uh, you know, you may, you may have sovereign citizens filing liens. And, and what's interesting is that in, in most states to file a lien on, on property or a lien a, against property, the, the, the person filing the lien doesn't have to go into an office or go before a court and show why they're entitled to file the lien. They simply file the paperwork. And uh, at this point, the, the filing offices have gotten uh, more wise to the fact that there are sovereign citizens out there who may file fraudulent liens. But for a long time, uh, people were just going in and filing liens against somebody who they wanted to harm. And then it, it may not be until somebody goes to sell their house or they run into uh, problems getting credit because there were liens in the millions, even billions uh, against their property. Um, but you know, related to that, one of the, the frauds that some sovereign citizens will engage in, and this seems to be big with, with Moors, is filing quitclaim deeds against property. So what that means is that they prepare a fraudulent deed to your home. They go and file it in the office. And when, when you leave the house, go on vacation, they take over the house. And uh, the, one of the reasons why this works with, with Moors is that a lot of them um, also take on Native American identity. And so they believe that, well, pretty much any piece of land in this country is rightfully Native American territory. And so they're just asserting their rights in the land against usurpers. Uh, but it can be very difficult, costly, time consuming uh, to get, get the, the deed uh, cleaned up, get the title cleaned up. Hmm. Um, so just a, just a comment that we've gotten. Margo asked if Randy Weaver was among the more notable sovereign citizens. Uh, Mr. Weaver was actually not, and identifying as a sovereign citizen, he was an adherent of, of what was called the Christian identity movement, which unsurprisingly was not at all Christian in its beliefs, but was very, very identifiable. 
um, Christian identity was also a beneficiary of of much of the posse comitatus ideology, uh, but frankly, for anything with the name Christian in it, was uh, perhaps even more racist than uh, than posse comitatus, which is a tough thing to achieve. Uh, but but they were so that was Randy Weaver. Um, one listener asks: Are there any court cases in which a sovereign citizen has been successful? And my sense is that what generally happens is, you know, you'll you'll often see YouTube fit, uh, films of of sovereign citizens at arraignments that yell that result in in shouting matches and overturned tables, but that's just the arraignment. Nothing happens after after that. They they the court enters a plea of not guilty, and the person gets dragged off kicking and screaming and never to be filmed again. Are there are there any cases where a sovereign has succeeded on merits in in yeah. in, in these beliefs? No, no, they, they don't succeed. Uh, they keep trying, but they don't succeed. And, uh, you know, a, gr- a great story along these lines, because it, it involves pizza. And who doesn't love stories about pizza? That's right. Is uh, the, uh, the Giordano's uh, pizza chain from the, the Midwest. It started in Chicago. And Giordano's actually went into bankruptcy in 2011. Now, it wasn't because they weren't selling enough pizza. They were. Uh, but they were... Um, they were heavily invested in real estate and 2011 was a difficult time for real estate. So they, they went into bankruptcy and there was nothing about it that looked like an unusual bankruptcy case until the, the owner started to go sovereign. And the, the owner was a guy named John Apostolou. He was a Greek immigrant who, uh, as I understand it, he washed dishes at Giordano's worked his way up and became the owner eventually. Uh, but, John Apostolou came under the sway of a sovereign citizen named Marshall Holm, who uh, is very influential. He is you know, widely published out there in the, the sovereign citizen publishing world. Uh, a lot of resources online that you can look for if you Google Marshall Holm. But things really started to go badly in the bankruptcy case when Apostolou started making filings that showed that he had bought into sovereign citizen beliefs. And ultimately they argued that there was no way that they could pay any debts because we no longer had valid American currency. And to his thinking, the only entity that could issue valid currency would have been the state of Illinois. And because they hadn't done so, he has no money and he can't pay his bills. Now, I don't think that would have worked if you'd try to, uh, skip out on a check at Giordano's right. when Apostolou was still there. Right. But, but that was his thinking. And you know, quite memorably, in one of the pleadings, he talked about how the, the fact that there was no cash, there were only something called frauds, Federal Reserve Accounting Unit Denominators, uh, which you and I call dollar bills. And it's just a great insight into uh, sovereign citizen thinking about currency. So but, one question did he have these beliefs before the bankruptcy? Did he come to these beliefs after the bankruptcy? It, it's really unclear. I don't think there was any indication that he was a sovereign citizen before the bankruptcy case. But again, this is a guy who was in severe financial distress and he, he was vulnerable and he came under the sway of this, this magical thinking that there was a way to avoid all these debts. Um, you know, in, in bankruptcy, one of the, the remedies for a, a Chapter 11 debtor 
who is um, seems unfit for running its business is the appointment of a trustee over the business. Right. And so the, the judge very quickly appointed a chapter 11 trustee. And, and, and for, pop- for the audience, a, a chapter 11 trustee displaces management. It displaces the board of directors. They become the person solely responsible for all of the corporation's activities responsible only to the bankruptcy court. Essentially, you've got a board of directors, you've got management, they are all sent packing, whether they own the company or not, whether they're engaged in the company or not, they are replaced. And so it's an incredibly drastic measure for a chapter 11 debtor, particularly one that is a going concern that has pizza shops and employees and customers and does business every day. Exactly right. It's the most drastic remedy probably that a bankruptcy court can impose on a chapter 11 debtor. And that trustee then went on and sold the business to a private equity firm that still owns it today. Um, so the apostles made out really badly. They not only lost control of the company, they lost whatever ownership interests they had in it. And they're, they're gone. They're no longer involved with the business. And, and, and losing one's ownership interests in a Chapter 11 case is pretty run of the mill. It's pretty common. You know, it's, it's not often that that anyone other than than an owner that can inject a lot of money into the business keeps their equity. So Correct. so losing their ownership was always a pretty strong possibility, but but they they could have gotten out of the case unscathed and 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 with less of a much less of a hassle and probably with less personal damage had the sovereign citizen issue never never been brought to bear. That that's exactly right. Um but it doomed their involvement in the business. Hmm. Well, what are some other examples, Tom, of, of sovereigns uh, and, and their interactions with kind of the non-sovereign world gone awry? You know, one of the things that's interesting about sovereigns is that, you know, we, we often want to look for the sovereign citizen thought. Uh, But a lot of times what you're also dealing with is sovereign citizens who are running run of the mill scams. So, uh, for instance, there is a case of a, uh, of a debtor in a bankruptcy case, again, in Northeast Pennsylvania, who um, was a dentist, had a practice. He assigned all of his ownership rights. After becoming under the sway of a, of a sovereign citizen, he uh, set up a fake church and assigned all of his property to that fake church. And because the, the church is a nonprofit organization, he... Uh, filtered uh, and laundered all of his income through that church until it eventually had caught up with him. And uh, he ended up being prosecuted. Um, it's a lot of times they, again, the, the sovereign citizens, the type of people that run these scams, you never know whether they're true believers or not. You know, when they go around the country telling people that uh, you, can, you can get out of your debts, you can stay in your home, even though you're being foreclosed upon, you know, they're preying on people. And um, so it's, it's pretty common to see uh, sovereign citizen type thinking involved with this, but whether they are uh, truly sovereign citizens or just opportunists, it can be hard to tell. Um, it, it occurs to me, Tom, that a lot of, a, a lot of this pain and suffering on the part of sovereigns could be solved if instead of at their moment of financial need, they were talking to a sovereign citizen guru who wanted to sell them a, a fake diplomatic immunity card and, and a tax manual for $2,000 plus, 
they talk to a bankruptcy lawyer for about 900 bucks. Yeah, uh, that would, that would usually make a lot more sense. Um, and, and sometimes they've done that. I mean, you certainly see there's a contradiction here. They don't believe that the federal government is legitimate, but sovereign citizens do file bankruptcy cases. And yeah, we'll go ahead and do that. How, how do those interactions go? The, they go the same way as they tend to go in other types of, of civil and criminal litigation in court. Uh, courts generally now recognize this. They can see it coming. Um, they become a lot more attuned to the type of language and the sorts of arguments that sovereign citizens make. And generally speaking, what courts will, will do when they address the issue is that they don't address it very much at all. Uh, in their written opinions, they'll typically say that the, the litigant appears to espouse sovereign citizen beliefs. Those have been routinely discredited and we're not going to uh, give it any credence here. And um, that's, that's how it usually gets taken care of. But, uh, but you can have, have much more uh, difficult encounters. And you, you referred before to criminal arraignments where you see this come up a lot, where there's a great deal of argument about jurisdiction and whether the court um, is even a legitimate court. Uh, and the idea that, that judges and attorneys um, are all really one and the same and that it's impossible for anybody to ever get a fair trial in a court, um, particularly given the fact that they believe that unless the court will acknowledge either that it's a, a common law court where statute is going to be ignored or it's a, an admiralty court, which of course there's only one court that's actually an admiralty court and that's called admiralty court. Right. But a bankruptcy court is not an admiralty court and a criminal court is not an admiralty court. So, uh, often get into these really frustrating dialogues and that's you know one of the hallmarks of these encounters whether it's with police or with judges uh, a lot of repetition of arguments uh, about why that they're why they're not subject to the jurisdiction either of the 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 traffic laws or subject to the jurisdiction of a particular court interesting so there was well, there is a, 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 a there was a case uh, the Lavender case, which we'll talk about for a bit, a $1 billion tax fraud undertaken to, to uh, against the U.S. government. And at the center of it is a fellow by, well, a, name, a, a man named Sean David Morton or Mr. Morton, who, aside from uh, speaking on a, a We Are's of the Night conspiracy themed radio show um, also had a, a workshop for sovereign citizens called the revolution starts with you. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Because a billion dollars is, is a lot of money. Right. Um, Sean Morton was, or, or is, he, he talks about sovereign citizens, sovereign citizen beliefs. I think he's really a more of a, a run of the mill fraudster. Um, but he, he very, uh, well, he's smart, he's a smart guy. And he got, uh, caught up in making you know, sales pitches to people who are in financial distress about ways that they could, um, redeem the cash 
that's available to them in the uh, in the Federal Reserve, the, those accounts that are held in their names, and encourage people to file all sorts of false tax returns, uh, file different tax forms, claiming that uh, that there was money owed, and people would go along with it. He would sort of disclaim responsibility, saying, "Look, I you know I heard this will work, but I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Um, probably did enough." in most instances to keep himself away from uh, being prosecuted for this stuff. Um, but, you know, there is uh, the New York times has, has covered him and he, they talk in their reporting about different people who um, he both preyed on and purported to help. And you, you talked about the lavender family. And in that case, there is a woman who became a widow and owed all sorts of uh, student loans for her, her son that she couldn't pay. And, um, and Morton ended up relieving her of a lot of her money in, uh, in trying to uh, persuade her that there were ways that she could cancel out the student loan debt through redemption theory. But you know, he's, he's estimated to have been involved in many tens or hundreds of millions of, of frauds. And uh, you know, the New York times makes the point that these, these frauds are, are numerous and can cost the country. Um, you know, and they, they talk about a billion dollar number. Yeah. And well, and you can spend twice as much tracking the money down after you realize it's been, it's been improperly dispersed. Forensic accountants are very expensive. <laughs> That's true. So one of the things that we talked about earlier is pseudo law. And one of the reasons why these far right fringe methodologies, really any fringe methodology, no matter where on the spectrum it is, one of the reasons why they work is because they use language that's appealing to people. And, and so with that, we're running out of time, but that's really the hook. If someone is talking fast, trying to sell you something that sounds too good to be true, and they tell you that the government was replaced by a corporation of a war, they're probably a sovereign citizen. Tom Haran, thank you for joining us today and for helping open up what is a fascinating but completely misguided political belief system for us. Tom's firm is online at Cozen.com. You can find Tom Haran on Twitter at Randell. Links to both will be in the episode notes on our webpage. Join us next time as we explore GameStop, Robin Hood, and what happened in the great short squeeze of January 2021. We'll seek to answer burning questions like why GameStop, why Reddit, and what the hell does Elon Musk have to do with any of this? Next week on Business Disrupted, wait, you're talking about the place in the mall? Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank 
you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.